0: Up on today's show, the Liberals and the NDP announce a confidence and supply agreement that will keep the Liberals in power until 2025. The Liberals continued policy of doing as little as possible for Ukraine. That's the viewpoint of political scientists from the University of Calgary. What music will we be listening to a hundred years from now? The NDP and Liberal Arrangement. They're not calling it a coalition. Uh, it's being called a confidence and supply agreement, which is different. Um, essentially, the way that it works is the NDP uh, will support the Liberal government on votes of confidence um, and any other issues that the in, in exchange for certain NDP specific issues, we're hearing about pharmacare, dental care, and housing was also mentioned by Jugmeet Singh. But um, there's a lot of text. How is this democratic? Well, this is actually the definition of democracy. Uh, it, this this happens in a lot of other places. It's happened in several Canadian provinces. In a parliamentary system, this is quite often how it works. Now, I understand people aren't happy about it, but to say it's undemocratic or it's illegal, no, no. <laughs> I mean, this is it, it's fair. It, it's within the system, and in fact, as I say, it's pretty common. So let's get some details on how these arrangements come about, where we've seen them before, and what they might mean. We're going to chat quickly with Laurie Williams. Um, Laurie is an associate professor and student advisor in the Department of Economics, Justice, and Policy Studies at Mount Royal. Laurie, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time.
1: Well, pleasure to be with you, Shane.
0: Yeah, I'm just taking a look at, at the text line, and a lot of people saying this is undemocratic. We didn't vote for this. This is literally the definition of parliamentary democracy, right?
1: Absolutely, and it's relatively rare in in Canada, but formal coalitions exist in parliamentary systems all the time elsewhere. Uh, And as your your, uh, newscast pointed out, this has happened as recently as 2017 in British Columbia back in 1972 with uh, Justin Trudeau's dad, Pierre Trudeau. Um, So not unheard of. Um, I think probably for most people what this... Signals for those who like minority governments, who like the idea of being able to hold government more directly accountable between elections, um, that possibility looks like it's been been sort of shut down mm-hmm. until 2025. And I understand that that's something that people would be, be concerned about. But it's not like the NDP can't decide to vote against the Liberals on other matters or challenge them or pressure them or oppose them in the House as they've done in the past. That's uh, the question,
0: Laurie. Like, when you're talking about a supply and confidence agreement versus a coalition, you know, according to Trudeau, this is about confidence votes, money bills. Other than that, okay. everything remains the same. Committees, parliamentary oversight, all that stuff. So in terms of how this works, I mean, it's not like they're in lockstep on all issues, is it?
1: No, they aren't. There will be opposition coming from the NDP, but um, it's important that you mention committee because that could be one of the differences. Um, so right now, in a minority government, um, the opposition parties uh, collectively can't, because every every opposition party has to vote in favor. They can call uh, government officials, including ministers, force them to come and, and testify before committees. Um, and if the NDP works more closely with with the Liberal government, that might be something that is is harder to do. So that that accountability uh, dimension that is within committee could be restricted. Well, I'm I'm not sure how many Canadians pay attention to what goes on in committee. There are lots of times when all they're doing is sort of making making points <clears throat> points by by attacking ministers and not really trying to get information. Nevertheless, uh, that element of, of accountability
0: could be diminished. Um, now, in terms of how binding is this? Could the Liberals say, you know what, we're tired of this now, next month? Or could the NDP say, you know what, it's not working out for us six months from now and walk away from this deal? I mean, yep. there's nothing in, in contract law or anything saying, hey, we're, we're bound together until 2025.
1: Well, I mean, it's an agreement. This isn't—it's it's more politics than than law, I would say. And so, there is the possibility that that agreement uh, could be walked away from by either side. So, it's Justin Trudeau decided he wanted an early election because he saw an opportunity. That's still a possibility. But having said that, I think you know at least between now and September, the Conservatives have to be a little bit breathing breathing a little bit easier, simply because they don't have to worry about a, an election being called. Yeah. To, um, during a leadership race um but yeah it's 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 it is formal in the sense that there's a an official agreement in place but you know political events could change and that that uh, arrangement could change leaders could change all kinds of things could could uh, cause both parties to rethink the agreement
0: um, you mentioned the Conservatives, and I'm just wondering, they're in the middle of a leadership race, and I think the thought was they'd probably be leading the party into an election in 2023. Uh, now they're being told 2025. Does it change how some of these potential leaders or people who are thinking about jumping in are feeling about things?
1: Well, it could be it could change how voters are thinking about things as well. I mean, as we all know, Pierre has has been saying that he's running to be the um, the Prime Minister of Canada, and and that becomes you know a sort of a longer term uh, thing with with uh, a guarantee, well, or at least a, a commitment to, to retain this this agreement until twenty twenty five. For Jean Charest, um, you know he he might be looking, looked at as a a less appealing alternative simply because he has no chance of becoming Prime Minister until he's later in his sixties and ages. and obviously as a a factor in these matters. Um, it does, I think, change the dynamics and the way people might look at the, the leaders. Who's going to be the most effective for the next three years is what people are looking at, particularly since the Conservatives have had two leaders in the last five years. I think uh, that might change the calculation in terms of, of who, pe- who the, the rank and file want to support for leaders.
0: Interesting times. Laurie, thank you so much for walking us through it. I appreciate it.
1: Oh, thank you, Shane.
0: our attention now to the situation in Ukraine and what's happening there. Uh, Of course, the West primarily focused on sanctions. That's been the focus of discussion, as you know. Um, UN Secretary General today saying um, this absurd war must end. The conflict is going nowhere fast and the Ukrainian people are enduring a living hell. Uh, Guterres uh, said continuing the war in Ukraine is morally unacceptable, politically indefensible and militarily nonsensical. There will be meetings this week in Brussels as NATO leaders gather to discuss the next steps to try and end this conflict and prevent it from getting any further spread. Uh, Our next guest gives our country a failing grade when it comes to uh, being a friend to Ukraine. Even worse, he um, he accuses our government of, well, cowardice and deceit attempting to trick the world into thinking they're helping, when in reality, they're not really doing much of anything, and they don't intend to. Let's check in with Dr. Rob Hubert. He's an associate professor of political science at the University of Calgary. Doc, thanks for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. No problem, shake Yeah, your column um, in the National Post um, is titled, The Liberals' uh, Continued Policy of Doing as Little as Possible for Ukraine. Pretty damning indictment of our response thus far.
2: Well the thing is is we have to appreciate and this isn't really getting getting properly expressed, but this war begins in twenty fourteen. You know, the there's been a very successful sort of narrative put forward that somehow Crimea was not part of Ukraine and that somehow that then justified the uh russian use of military force to to invade crimea to cut it off from mm-hmm. from uh the ukraine and their successful use of hybrid warfare in the in the in the Dubois region in eastern ukraine also somehow gets gets mislaid, and so To understand the Canadian policy towards this war in Ukraine, you really have to go back to 2014 and then track what was happening, rather than just simply looking at the uh, political pronouncements that have been coming out since uh, February of of this year.
0: Yeah, you're right. I mean, that was sort of the initial. I mean, a lot of people call this a continued invasion uh, that began back in 2014. uh, And I guess you would say this is a campaign of continued indifference
2: from the Canadian government. Absolutely. I mean, you go through everything that we allegedly were planning to do or, or, or were set to do, and and there's almost nothing. I mean, uh, the remember when the invasion starts in 2014, we have the Harper government, and of course, in 2015, the have uh, the Trudeau government being elected, and many of the actions that the Harper government took which were mild, is mild is probably the best one could say about it, almost every single one of them, with two exceptions, were eliminated. And, and if anything, efforts were made to sort of re-engage with the Russians in terms of any any sense of sort of, um, of effort to sort of uh, criticize or contain Russia for the invasion.
0: So, yeah, we'll get to that in just a second. But going back to why that sort of stance was taken was, did we just not see this coming? Were we not aware of where this may lead? Did we not care? I mean, how did we put ourselves in a position where we're so so ill-prepared for what happened, you know, in 2022, uh, 23 or 22, I guess?
2: Yeah. I think it's it's an element of we've just become so self absorbed. Yeah. Um you know, the 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 real irony here is of course one of the big hallmarks of the Trudeau administration when it gets elected, Canada's back, we're gonna be back on the scenes. And the reality is that if you trace, we don't even have a formal foreign policy in the entire length of time that this government's been in power. And and as a result, I think the exact opposite has occurred. We have become very inward looking, and of course part of that is under Understandable in terms of what has happened in terms of the uh, COVID crisis, but even prior to the uh, the, the outbreak of the pandemic, um, you know, we basically, with the exception of the one year Mali deployment and the effort to get a seat at the Security Council or um, uh, at the uh, United Nations. Uh, we've almost been non-existent. We're nowhere to be seen on the Asia Pacific front. Uh, in fact, we've been disruptive. If the Australian um, Prime Minister, or former Prime Minister Turnbull's to be believed, um, we definitely haven't been doing very much on the European front. Um, peacekeeping, really nothing, and so. It's a very inward-looking approach. Almost, I don't want to call it isolationism because we're still involved with our alliances, but it's it's definitely not that outward-looking that many people have associated Canadian foreign policy with Be historically.
0: You know, isolationism would be sort of expressed. It would be sort of we're not getting engaged. Kind of like what the U.S. has done with the USA First program in a lot of different ways. We've continued to say, as you say, we're back on the world stage and we're going to be international leaders on this and that. Um, but then we don't really seem to follow through. Is it Have we just been complacent for so long? I think a big part of it is we live next door to the United States. And when it comes to defense and all these sorts of things, we just sort of, I think, take advantage of the position that we're in
2: or have. Oh, absolutely absolutely i mean we're in such a i mean the reality is we are in a very fortunate position i mean you look at ukraine having russia as a neighbor you look at taiwan having china as a neighbor and you go through the entire international system and and we are in the most secure neighborhood there is we may not like everything that the americans do and i know there was a lot of uh... teeth gnashing when trump came to power with some of the uh... uh unbelievable policies that he brought forward but in the overall scheme of things, um, we are protected. And that gives us the luxury of pretending that the international system like that and that we can just basically, you know, we, 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 we can deal with people like the Kurds that we engaged heavily to assist us when we were fighting against ISIL And as soon as the situation turned, we basically left them. I mean, many Canadians would not be aware, but when the Trudeau government finally decided to send lethal aid to Ukraine in mid-February of this year, the lethal aid that they had was the lethal aid they were supposed to give to the Kurds and never gave. Um, same thing in the Afghanistan, remember we fought a major war in afghanistan we don 't like to call it a war, but you know Canadian forces personnel men and women both died there. Um, they presumably killed many of the enemy and um, basically, when the decision was made and this was this was bipartisan, of course, when the decision was made to pull out. And we have no plan in, in in place whatsoever to retrieve those that helped Canadian. I mean, at least the Americans, as bad as their withdrawal was, they had something of a plan to pull people out, and so did the uh, the British and French. And we basically said, "Well, phone phone foreign affairs, and they'll see what they can do over the phone for you." So, we um, we 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 have this 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 conceit that that somehow our values and norms will be so overpowering, but our actions in, in recent years sure don't back it up. Okay, now
0: let's take a look at our response to Ukraine. Is it, is it fair to say we've done nothing? Like you say, the lethal aid has arrived, I mean, late, and it was very reluctantly given. But, uh, you know, when, he, when we talk about the international response with economic sanctions, I've, I've read things out of the U.S. saying that Christian Freeland was the driving force behind that. Canada did play a role. Is it fair to say we've, we've paid lip service and not done anything in this effort?
2: Well, once again, one never quite knows what's happening behind the scenes. But I, I have seen the stories, you know, praising Freeman in terms of the response to the current circumstance. But remember, she's been with this government since the government came to power in 2015. I know she wasn't within cabinet and within the, the initial years, but, you know, if in fact that there was a role to play, you have to ask, why does it only come up with the resumption of the fighting um, at that point? Okay, fine. But once again, we check in terms of the sanctions. We check in terms of the provision of military aid. We check in terms of the determination not to have a no-fly zone. And inevitably, what we see in the Canadian policy is we always seem to be announcing it one or two days after our our allies uh, uh, announce that they're doing it. And so it seems as if you know, we're we're at least playing the role that we're not ab- ab- obstructing what the other allies yeah. want to do, but we just seem to be basically following along in that context.
0: Yeah, certainly not leading, uh, just sort of following along with what's happening. Interesting take, Doctor. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Love the Black Crows, but I wouldn't say it's going to be um, historic music we listen to for the rest of time, Sarah, what is the best piece of music in your mind ever written?
1: If you're talking about classical music, I like anything by Vivaldi uh-huh. I think he's probably the best classical artist that I've ever heard. Yeah, sure But then if you're talking like pop music, I like Jackie and Wilson by Hozier That's my. That's the best song ever
0: Do you think Jacqueline Wilson by Hoosier Nice try <laughs> is something we're going to be listening to, or not us, obviously, but uh, kids a hundred years Is it something that we'll still be playing? Yeah, you know what? I think it's timeless. I think it's going to last. You think so, hey? I do. Uh, this is the best piece of music ever written, by the way. This is um, Cello Suite Number 1 in G Major, the prelude, by Bach, written, believe it or not, 300 years ago. And we still listen to it. This is Yo-Yo Ma playing it. You'll hear it on a stage somewhere in the world being performed by one of the world's great orchestras this weekend. Um, That's music that stands the test of time. You know Bach, you know Mozart. Uh, Sarah mentions Vivaldi. Um, Do we have any right now? Or have we when it comes to what we call popular music? Are there any acts that will be Bach or Mozart 300 years from now? I don't know, but it's a fun question. And joining us to talk about it, we have Alan Cross, who is the host of the Ongoing History of New Music. Alan, thank you for joining us.
3: Oh, you're welcome. This is a thorny subject for a lot of people.
0: It really, really is. Now, okay, we've got Bach, we got Mozart. We understand that though, that's timeless. It's, all, it's never going away. Um, we still see it being performed every weekend um, and likely will, right? I mean, this is the kind of music we're talking about that just stands the test of time and has for so long.
3: It pretty much has. I mean, this is classical music that has been handed down since, well, we can probably go back as far as the 14th century for for classical music. And it has been passed down through musicians and orchestras and conductors for for hundreds of years, uh, mostly through um, written music, sheet music. uh, And it will continue to be with us for as long as people realize that there is some value and some pleasure to be taken in, in classical music. Where it gets weird is, okay, uh, if this music has lasted three, four, five, six hundred years, is there anything out today that will have right. a similar lifespan? And now, that's where it gets weird. Can we look at
0: music, and I mean, any genre, you know, we're talking about the great classics, and can we identify why that music has endured and try and impl- apply that to modern? I mean, Is there a reason that music endures while others just sort of come and go?
3: Yeah, first of all, (laughs) immortality is conferred upon an artist by critics. So if, in any particular era, if somebody writes that this is worthy, this needs to be preserved, this has timeless beauty, well, then it has a better chance of living on. Now, that music may not necessarily be popular. Uh, Let's take the case of a guy by the name of Paul Whitehead. Sorry, Paul Whiteman. Paul Whiteman was was a very big, big band leader in the 1920s and the 1930s. He was everywhere. He was super, super popular, and he was super, super mainstream. So he sold lots of records to lots of people, but because he was so mainstream, he didn't really have the ear of the critics, and they dismissed him as someone lightweight somebody who was only appealing to the masses, somebody who wasn't really advancing the cause, the art, the beauty of music. He was just a guy uh, who was there to entertain the masses. So today we don't really hear much about Paul Whiteman, but we hear more about Duke Ellington. We hear more about Robert Johnson. Sure. We hear more about, say, Benny Goodman than um anything that paul whitman ever did so uh, the the history is written by the critics and if these critics don't agree that your music is timeless well you're going to get lost i mean how many classical music uh, composers are there uh who we don't ever hear about i mean we would have never heard about antonio Salieri if it hadn't been for that mozart movie
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. You're 100% correct on that. Um, What about technology? Now, I'm old enough to remember, you know, a time before Walkman's where, you know, uh, and it's certainly well before the streaming universe we live in now, where literally any piece of recorded music ever is available instantly. It wasn't like that not that long ago. And prior to technology existing, it was really hard to hear music in some cases. How does that change how what rises to popularity and lasting, you know, legacy?
3: Well, that's another good question. Uh, one of the things about music in the olden days is that you couldn't capture it. Right. It was either there as it was being performed or it was gone. And it certainly wasn't portable unless you carried an instrument on your back or wherever you went or, or whistled. That, that was the extent of, of portable music back before the, uh, the phonograph and the gramophone. Uh, now, uh, you know, from about the late 1950s forward, we ended up with proper high-fidelity audio. Anything before that, a bit sketchy, some better than others, but certainly before 1950, things were, were pretty low fidelity. And uh, unless it has been electronically repurposed to sound better, it, it's, it just doesn't sound good, unless yeah. you're listening to, like, like, blues records from the 1930s, when you have and to They're have supposed that. to sound like that. Right, that scratchy authenticity. Yeah. So uh, technology is one thing. You know, how, are we, how is it being preserved? Um, how does it sound as it 's being preserved? Is it in some sort of lost format that we can 't play back anymore? i 'm sure there's some really good music out there that 's only available on eight track that we 'll never hear again <laughs> because nobody 's got a working A track player. Um, so it, it becomes you know down to the part where this music has to sound good in order to last another 100 years or 200 years or 300 years so that's one of the um, the things that we have to con- consider when we're looking at today's music in terms of its immortality
0: okay so let's take a look at today's music and see i mean i think for some reason i don't even know why but i think we all just say well beatles okay that's that that one's going to last for whatever reason we all seem to agree that okay yeah beatles are going to be right up there with bach and mozart right i mean is that's <laughs> accepted
3: I think so, simply because the Beatles are critically lauded, commercially successful, and they've been so well documented uh, since, well, from the very beginning. So, yes, I would say that there's going to be a lot of scholarship and documentation uh, that goes with the Beatles for for many decades, maybe hundreds of years, yes. I agree with
0: you. Who else? I mean, other names that come to mind, let me just throw them at you and get your take. Elvis. I don't like Elvis personally, but I know a lot of people do.
3: Yeah, it's interesting with Elvis because he recorded in that period. His his most important music was recorded in the period where we were still coming to terms with high fidelity recording. So I saw, like, you know, Hound Dog and Don't Be Cruel and, you know, all those other big hits from the 1950s. They sound okay. Mm-hmm. They're, they're fine. And, and, you know, they have been rechanneled into stereo. They have been uh, cleaned up so they sound pretty good. That's okay. But one of the problems with Elvis is his legacy isn't very good. After he died, he became this this pitchy yeah. pop culture figure that really in in some cases uh, has destroyed his appeal for for subsequent generations. Now that does not take away from the important stuff that he did in the 1950s, but it did it has made him a little harder to to stomach uh, and you,
0: and not of, even not even after he died, Alan, but I mean even the Vegas fat Elvis era, right? I mean that's a bit of a joke. it's a cliche, right?
3: Well, we can even go back to the early 1960s when he came out of the Army and was doing those terrible movies. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, so, but he did have a comeback in the 1960s, so that kind of erased some of that other stuff. But so, so with, with Elvis, got you know, he's such a big part of popular culture. You can't just look at his music and say, that is what's going to sustain him over many decades or hundreds of years. Uh, the Elvis fan base has shrunk considerably since what it was. Compare that to the Beatles, which they only seem to be getting bigger with each yeah. passing year. No, you're right. Yeah, yeah.
0: you're right. Um, okay, another one. Um, Michael Jackson, king of pop. Nobody bigger through the 1980s than Michael Jackson. You want to talk about record sales. This guy,
3: he's still the king, right? Yeah, you know, still the king of pop. A tremendously influential, most popular artist of all time. Um, again, his legacy his has tended to... a to, by you know by things outside of his music and the other thing too with with him is that he was a he's a pop star so all his music is you know pop music is by its nature evanescent and of the moment yeah. yeah so how how well sonically will those songs age over you know multiple decades right now they seem to be fine but you have to listen to the technology that was used the instrumentation that was used the 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 um, uh, you know, the, the the arrangements that were used, uh, it may not have as long a life as something that is basic, like guitar, bass, and drums, which is where we come
0: to so your your Berry. pick. You're off the board, I mean, and, and I've read the piece, and I know who you're thinking of, and, and uh, go ahead, and, and give us your case for the, the great Chuck Berry.
3: Yeah. Now, this is not an original thought of my head. There was a New York Times article many years ago that, that talked about this very subject. And uh, the the, uh, the writer made the, um, made the point that because Chuck Berry was there at the beginning, because he was an African-American who helped create this amalgam of country, blues, rhythm and blues, Western music, and guitar music into this three-chord thing, over a 4-4 beat with a a driving chorus, chorus, verse-chorus structure, Mm -hmm. that he has became the archetype for countless, countless (laughs) uh, bands that came after him. So if we're going to, in the year 2500, study the music of the 20th and 21st century, we're inevitably going to be led back to Chuck Berry, much like classical musician scholars are led back to Bach, because he was there at the beginning, yeah. who came up with these ideas, who uh, codified certain sounds and attitudes, and, and uh, a- as a result, will be remembered forever. The other thing about Chuck Berry is that in 1977, the Voyager spacecraft, took off from Earth. There's two of them, one and two. They're somewhere between 15 and 18 billion miles away on a never-ending journey to somewhere. And on each of those spacecraft is the golden record, which contains sounds of Earth. There's exactly one rock and roll song on there, and that's Johnny B. Good (laughs) by Chuck Berry. So if aliens ever run across us, even after our sun has flamed out, the one rock song that will survive... Is Johnny be good by Chuck Berry,
0: and I'm okay with that, Alan. I am. I mean, like you say, he he's the he's if not the creator, he was certainly uh, one of the guys at the very beginning that sort of kicked it into motion.
3: Yeah, and we can debate this a lot. Oh yeah, and, and I, I, I I highly recommend uh, you know debating this, but uh, once you start going down this rabbit hole, things get kind of weird.
1: <laughs>
0: Alan, we'll do this again. I, unfortunately, I'm out of time now, but uh, there's more to discuss, as you say, and we'll do it another time. Thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. That is Alan Cross, who is uh, host of the Ongoing History of New Music. Thanks for listening today. To you hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.